children. And Lord, we pray that you would make this a special day to be with you, to be with our friends. We ask that you would do this for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You want to get out your sermon outline, have your Bibles out. We are in Exodus chapter 6 today. Talk about the promise of the Lord. It is a long chapter with a fascinating genealogy, which I'm not going to read right now. But we will get to it and sort of go through it uh, as we uh, get there. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we need it. We need this account of your work to bring your people out of the house of slavery in Egypt. We pray that as we look at it, we would remember uh, Paul's words, that this story was written for us, it happened for us, so help us, by your grace, to learn the lessons of Exodus. We need to be reminded of what makes you so great. We need to see the glory of the Lord, and we need Jesus. We need a rescuer, a deliverer, a redeemer, a savior. We need the salvation found only in him. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Christ in Exodus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, you know, I was reading some articles the other day. I tend to uh, read lots of articles at very uh, high speed, sort of scan them. And I came across several articles on the horrible subject of suicide. And the concern in these articles was the fast-growing groups of people who feel this is the only option left to them. And one of the fastest-growing groups of people who decide to end their own lives is upper-middle-class white men who are in their late 50s. That got my attention. I have no idea why. But it did. So I said, I usually scan through these pretty quickly, but this one I stopped and I read it in depth. And the author's hypothesis is that upper middle class white men in their late 50s are suffering from overwhelming despair. And I was struck by that. See, what they say is a great number of uh, these men are looking forward at the rest of their lives, and they're realizing they're probably not going to be CEO, and they see nothing but a gold watch, dementia, and hospice, and they just say no. These men aren't suffering from terrible health issues yet. They're not facing loneliness and isolation yet. They're not, as we've just heard, having to deal with persecution and oppression yet but they all see that in their future. And they just say no. They have no hope. And they have no faith. And they have little or no love, even if they have significant others in their lives. 
And I thought of Paul, who had difficult times in his life. He faced real hardships. He had to deal with health issues and loneliness and isolation and persecution and oppression, not to mention the occasional shipwreck. And yet the Apostle Paul said, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, For we not, do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. <coughs> so we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And so I was thinking about all of this, and I thought, you know, if there's anyone in the Bible who could legitimately despair, who could claim to have no hope, who could look forward at the rest of his life and see nothing but illness, loneliness, isolation, persecution, and oppression, it's Moses. And what Moses needs most is not our pity, nor our sympathy. But what Moses needs most is the gospel. He needs to hear the message on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Moses needs the gospel. So let me start today by asking, what's the gospel for? What's the good news for? Gospel means good news. What's the good news for? Well, if you're not a Christian, the gospel is the only hope that you have. It's life itself. It's the message of salvation for sinners available only in Jesus Christ. Therefore, that's the most vital, most important news you will ever hear. But what if you're already a Christian? Is it irrelevant? No, understood correctly, the good news about Jesus Christ should be a source of love and a fountain of hope and a resource for strengthening your faith as you seek to live uh, for Jesus. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of the discouragements that you might face, now, Moses is confronted by profound discouragement at the end of chapter 5. And the Lord responds in chapter 6 with a string of promises, all of which are gospel promises. He speaks God's answers, and God preaches the gospel to Moses in order to dispel his discouragement, to encourage Moses, and through Moses to encourage all of Israel. Now remember, this is Moses we're talking about. He's not a rebel. He's not an enemy of God. He's the mighty prophet of the Lord. He's God's appointed deliverer for Israel. And God comes and proclaims the good news of his salvation for his people. God preaches the gospel to Moses. You know, sometimes if we think of the gospel, particularly if we're Christians, we think of it like a harbor you know, from which we, we go out, we depart on the voyage of the Christian life. It's like a safe shore, and we go out to explore deeper waters elsewhere. And I'm telling you, that's a wrong way to think about the gospel. 
It's not a starting point for the Christian life which you leave behind when you look for deeper truths. Not all, instead, I think a much better metaphor for the gospel is planting in rich and fertile soil, and you're a seed that gets planted into that soil. And when you begin to put down roots, you sink those roots more deeply into the gospel. So that as you grow, you drive more and more nourishment from the gospel. You don't grow past it, and you don't grow out of it, but you grow down deeply into it. And the good news is that Jesus, Jesus is a vital truth for you, no matter uh, who you are or where you are or how far you've come in the Christian life. You need the encouragement and the nourishment of the gospel preached to you. And that's the lesson that God has for Moses. But it's a lesson that requires Moses and us to remember the big picture and to take the long view. And we're not very good at that. We're much better at examining the details. We're much better at the short term. In other words, to borrow the title of a best-selling business book, we want it free, perfect, and now. And that's not common. Faithful followers need to take the long view. Exodus shows us that even though Moses had this burning bush moment, and even though the people of Israel responded very favorably to his initial report, Moses' early days of doing what God told him uh, didn't actually work out very well. Pharaoh is dismissive and punishing. Things become difficult. The people of Israel get angry with Moses and Aaron, and they despaired of life itself. Remember what they said near the end of chapter 5. Their rage sounds like this, Exodus 5. The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And of course, then Moses turns around and responds and turns to the Lord, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now I'm sure... Sometimes you can relate to Moses. Truth be told, it's hard to take the long view sometimes. It's very easy to wonder, God, what in the world are you doing? And I can only imagine, as Moses thought back to this moment in his life, he could see more clearly that while he knew he needed to take the long view, there's something really significant going on in the hearts of the people of Israel, and Moses' heart too. And it's preventing them from hearing God's words. Remember God's words were, now you shall see what I, I will do to Pharaoh. But they can't hear that. Even when they get the message of God's words from Moses, they still despaired. They struggled. And our text this morning is a text with a great message, but it's sort of got a strange flow to it. And I think a part of the reason is this passage uh, is like this because it's a prelude to the plagues, and it's a prelude to the Passover, and it's a prelude to the tabernacle, and it's a prelude to the gospel. Moses is setting the stage for what's coming, but first, he's helping us to understand how bad the situation is for the people of God. 
Moses is setting us up for the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament. But before that happens, he highlights how bad uh, the situation is, how bad things have really gotten. And so this text uh, is the prelude text. and covers God's promises and God's people and God's plan. And so we'll start with God's promises, and in particular, God's past promises. That should be the first blank there in your outline, verses 2 through 5, God's past promises. It says, Moses spoke, or excuse me, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So here's the situation. The foremen of the people, presumably the people themselves, are blaming Moses for their increased hardship, and they're rejecting his leadership. And the foremen have already asked for his resignation. The meeting's already been held. That's where we are. The foremen have met. They want a resignation, and they want it yesterday. If there's ever a time when a prophet needs a word of reassurance from the Lord, it's now. Now, the great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry, who I mentioned earlier uh, this morning, once said, Now that the whole affair has come to a crisis and things are as bad as they can be, Pharaoh is at the height of his pride, and Israel is at the depth of her misery. Now is God's time to appear. And of course, that's precisely what he does. Exactly what does God do in this situation? Everything's gone bad. Moses is uh, you know, being criticized and rejected by the people of Israel. He's getting blamed. He's passing that on to God. You got it. These people you've given me. You haven't done anything. It's time to do something. And so what does God do in response to this crisis? He continues the conversation with Moses. Because I'm sure that's exactly what Moses wants. Let's talk some more. But the words he speaks are exceedingly gracious. Not only to Moses and not only to Israel, but to us as well. In fact, we're going to see that the word that Moses gets from God is precisely the word that God gives us in Jesus. So look here at verses 2 through 5. We see the Lord reveal himself. We see him announce again, as he had back in Exodus 2, his concern, his compassion for the sufferings of his people. And in this hour of crisis, what does God do? He does this. He says something. He says, let me tell you who I am. Let me reveal myself to you more gloriously than ever before. Let me remind you that I'm the very same God who spoke to the patriarchs. I'm more glorious than you've ever known. Let me remind you that I care for you more than you could ever understand. I still don't think this is what Moses wants to hear. And what's really interesting, in this hour of crisis, God comes with a message about himself. Now, if this were any other person, it'd be arrogant to the point of disbelief. You know, you've heard the 
story about the guy who takes a girl out on a date and talks about his work, and he talks about the latest project that he's working on, and he says, enough about that, let's talk about me. And that kind of self-centeredness is boggling, mind-boggling in people. But whenever God begins a work of salvation in his people, he always begins by revealing himself. And before Moses, before the people of Israel are going to be able to do uh, what they've been called to do, they're going to be able to go through what they're being called to go through, first they need to know who the Lord is. So that's where he begins. And so God continues this conversation with Moses. Beginning back in verse 1 with this important declaration of, I'm the Lord. It's how God identifies himself. I am the Lord. It's the same formula Jesus uses in the Gospel of John. I'm the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of heaven. I am the living water. And I missed one. There's another one. I'm the resurrection and the life. God is announcing something about himself. And whenever God starts telling you who he is, listen carefully because something's up. It's exactly what's happening here. God is telling Moses about himself because something's up. Now, if you look at the end of verse, uh, verses 2 and 3, God connects himself explicitly to the God of the patriarchs. So Moses' message is not, hey, y'all have heard of the God of the patriarchs. Moses was from the south. So he said, hey, y'all have heard of the God of the patriarchs, but we're done with him. We're going on to a new and improved version. That's not the message. Moses' message is the God who is speaking to him, the God who is speaking to his people in captivity is the same God who spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Aaron, Israel, all worship the same God. That's fundamental to understanding Moses' point in this passage. Also, if you look at verse 3, that formula, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it's used frequently in the first five books of the Bible. But it's used first in Genesis 50 and the promise of the Exodus. Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that means that this verse in Exodus 6 is the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 50. The same God who made the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God who fulfills the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 4, the Lord declares, he remembers the covenant that he had established with them, with the patriarchs, to give them the land. His people have forgotten it. They've given up hope. They've forgotten the promise. They've given up, but not the Lord. He remembers it. And he indicates he's about to act. Verse 5, Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, when God says he remembers the covenant, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten it. When I remember something, it means just before I didn't remember it. But in the Old Testament, when God tells you he remembers something, he tells you he's about to act. 
kind of like a warning order. Remember my covenant? Get ready. He's telling you he's going to act. To remember for the Lord is to take action for his people. It's not an act of having a forgotten uh, memory restored. God doesn't have dementia. He doesn't have senior moments. It's an act of God announcing to his people he's prepared to act on the commitments that he's made. You think about when we get into a hard time or a tough situation, uh, some sort of jam or pickle. I love the way we use like food to describe that. Um, But what we want is a way out. We want a plan. We want a strategy. We want light at the end of the tunnel. We want something practical, something nuts and bolts, as many metaphors as I can get into one sentence. You know, something from A to Z to get out of the mess that we're in. And it's interesting that in this mess, in this pickle, God stops and says, Moses, you're right. You're in a jam. You're in a mess. You're groaning. You're suffering. Let me tell you about myself. But you know, that's exactly what God wants you to know. When we get into a pickle... Although we want a way out, we want a plan, we want a strategy, God wants us to know who he is. That comes first. Salvation begins with knowing who God is. John 17, knowing God is eternal life. The point is salvation begins with knowing who God is. And so when he's preparing to do a great work, when he's preparing to take great action, he begins by teaching his people about himself. That's why the most important thing that you can learn in your own study of the Bible is who God is. That's always the starting point in God's dealings with us. And that's where God starts with Moses. He tells us something glorious about himself. He tells Moses he's going to reveal himself to be the Lord in the Exodus in a way that transcends everything and anything that the patriarchs had experienced. I love what Dr. Alec Moitier writes about this passage. He's an English uh, Bible professor. It's just uh, amazing. He says, The Exodus is on a large scale what Mount Moriah and the sacrifice of Isaac was in the miniature. The same God who provided the ram for Abraham provides the Passover lamb for Moses. There is no further truth about God ever to be revealed. Listen to that. There is no further truth about God ever to be revealed. Even we who have been permitted to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ see only the truth of the Exodus. And his greater exodus, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem with the greater Passover lamb. This is always how he begins, with himself. But God doesn't stop just by reminding Moses about his past promises, or even with revealing himself, he moves on to future promises. And so we see in verses 6 through 8, God's future promises. Now last week, Reverend Doris told you, We fight discouragement with gospel promises. We walk by faith, not by sight. When it doesn't look like God is walking with us and things are not going how we hoped, people have turned on us, life has beaten us down, we lift our eyes to the heavens and remember that he is able, Ephesians 3, 
to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Well, now we've come to some of those gospel promises that they've talked about. And they start in verse 6. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The Lord gives us a sevenfold pledge to the people of Israel. He says to Moses, listen to my promises. Moses, first for yourself, then for the people. Look at verse 6. God once again uses this sort of royal formulation, uh, self-identification, I am the Lord. So he announces himself again. And then he commences with seven I wills. They're all in first person singular. By the way, Jesus does the same thing in the gospel. If you could look up the I wills of Christ, few things would be more encouraging to you than that. But here to Moses, God gives seven I wills. First, I will bring you out. In other words, the Lord himself, not Pharaoh, not Moses, certainly not the people who are in despair, but the Lord himself will bring you out. God himself will come to the rescue of his people. Second, I will deliver you. I will free you. I will save you. I will rescue you. God the Savior will come and rescue his people. Third, I will redeem you. This must have been exceedingly precious in Hebrews. You know, if they actually stop to listen, because God is saying, I will be your kinsman redeemer. We're going to start Advent in a few weeks, and we're going to take a break from Exodus and go through Ruth which is going to be Christmas and Ruth, which is all about our kinsman, Redeemer. And yet here God is taking that statement for himself. I will redeem you out of the hand of the enemy myself. Fourth, I will take you to be my people. It's the beginning of the Emmanuel principle, God with us, the heart of the covenant. Fifth, I will be your God. He announces, having said he'll be their God, that they will know that he is the Lord, their God, who brought them out from the burdens of the Egyptians. And it's the beginning of that great creedal statement of Israel's faith, which is at the very beginning, it's sort of appended to the beginning of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's sort of the kind of like the Apostles' Creed of the Old Testament. That's how it starts. Over and over again, God speaks. It begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When you hear that, it's time to pay attention. This is who I am. I'm the Lord who redeemed you. I'm the Lord who brought you out. I'm the Lord who rescued you from Egypt, who brought you out of the house of slavery. Six, he says, I will bring you into the land central promise of God's covenant with Abraham. And notice how God puts it here, verse 8. I will bring you in the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God Almighty, El Shaddai, standing in the dock and saying, I swear by me that I will bring you into the land. 
And seventh, he says, I will give it to you as your possession. The Exodus event is about to come to pass. For the Lord to remember, the Lord to act, faith rests in the promises of God. Are you wrestling to know God's purpose for you, God's promises for you? He's saying, stop, be still, see the Lord, hear his promises, realize what he said, and be comforted. So know what the rest of the scriptures say about God's promises. Just a few here, I've put them in your outline. Joshua 21, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Romans 15, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. 2 Corinthians 1, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. We have the promises of God, his precious and very great promises. But we don't always listen. And Moses' people didn't listen either. They're still in despair. They lack hope. Sad to say they're God's fearful people. God's fearful people, picking up at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? for I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We actually have a fairly sad scene here. Moses takes the word of the Lord. God has preached the gospel to Moses. He takes that. He delivers the gospel to the people. He reminds them of God's promises, and they don't listen. Beloved, so often the circumstances of our burdens crowd out our comforts. Like so many of us, people didn't listen to Moses. Moses faithfully speaks, but their pain drowns out this word from God. These people are physically beaten down, and they've lost heart. And I think there's a lesson, I suspect, between the There's a connection between the weariness of the body and the weariness of the soul. And their oppression is heavy. It's described in amazing terms here. We're told they did not listen because they had a broken spirit. Literally, the Hebrew says, on account of their shortness of breath. Maybe you know what that's like. You want to have faith, you want to believe, but the reality is you have a broken spirit. 
you want to believe in God's promises, you know that sometimes, a lot of times, things don't work out the way you think they should. You thought you'd find your soulmate, and marriage was in the picture, but it didn't work out. And now you have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. Or you did find your spouse and promised to be in it for better or worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others only to be talked down to, belittled, and emotionally abused. And you have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. And you know what it's like to lose a job. So any rumor in the office makes you really, really fearful. You have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. And you've prayed for a baby for years, and every 28 days you have to fight for joy. You have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. Or you watch an adoption go south, and you live in constant fear of it happening again and you have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. Or your spouse cheated on you, and the smallest things now make you afraid. You have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. Or you've prayed for your wayward child to come back home, but it's been a long time now. You have a broken spirit, and it's hard to breathe. Maybe you know what it's like to be overwhelmed, feeling you're so under oppression that you're out of breath. You can't breathe. It's like you've had the wind knocked out of you, and you can't catch your breath. And when you can't catch your breath, it's pretty hard to listen to a sermon, let alone God. Have you ever been grasping for breath, and you don't think the next one is coming? I promise you, it is hard to concentrate on anything else. And God is gracious as he describes the reason why they don't listen. Well, let me ask, are you at the end of your rope? Are you so restless that you can't pause to hear from God because that's the most important thing that you need to do? What's keeping you from hearing the word of the Lord? Doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing more needed than to do just that. You're under too much pressure not to stop and be still and know that he is the Lord, to know his promises. Because when God prepares to save his people, he reveals himself and he makes promises and he says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Essentially, God's telling you, don't just do something, stand there. And that's exactly what he's telling Israel here. It's exactly what he's telling Moses. It's exactly what he's telling you. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And God doesn't just ask the Israelites to trust him. He gives them a little history lesson. And he lets them know about God's long-term plan. Verses 14 through 27, the wonderful genealogy that I mentioned. First of all, I'm not going to read all these because I can't pronounce all these names. Let me say they're important. In fact, this section probably should have been a sermon all on its own. So very quickly, let me hit the high points. This whole uh, section is actually about Aaron. He stands at the center in verse 20. It's probably a passage of scripture that you just be tempted to skip over. And yet there's important things uh, to notice and to learn here. You know, the insertion of a genealogy at this point in the story may seem odd to us, 
Uh, but for a person in the ancient Near East, it wouldn't seem out of place at all. We tend to think of genealogies like credits at the end of a movie. But this genealogy, like all genealogies in the Bible, is intended to communicate important messages. Think about Matthew's Gospel, the way in the genealogy in the first chapter traces the line of Christ back through David to Abraham, a clear message that Jesus is the promised king. So what are the messages communicated here in this genealogy? Uh, there's a number of them. I'm just going to sort of hit the high points. The list begins with Reuben and Simeon, Jacob's first two sons, showing that Levi is third in the line and one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's important because Moses and Aaron are descendants of Levi. This establishes them as full-blooded Hebrews, which the people didn't believe. They thought Moses was an Egyptian. You were raised in the Pharaoh's house. You're not one of us. This genealogy is demonstrating that he is Moses and Aaron, full-blooded Hebrews, descendants of Levi. It ends, now the list ends with Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, who saves Israel in Numbers 25. This wicked man decides to commit adultery in the tabernacle. He basically says, let me get this Midianite woman. We're going to go in the tabernacle. We're going to climb on the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we think about God. Phineas grabs a spear, Numbers 25, goes in and drives it through both of them. And Phineas is a hero. It says he took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. And God says, Phineas saves Israel not just from adultery, but from idolatry and from my wrath, because if this thing happened, I was going to destroy all of you. He's the hero. Third, it lists the sons of Levi. But it gives special attention to three of them, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now, the Gershonites are in charge of the curtains and the tent. These are the people that are called to make the tabernacle, which is coming Chapters ahead. We'll get there in the spring. The Marites are the structural engineers. They're in charge of all the wood and the stone used in the tabernacle. And the Kohathites are the interior designers of the tabernacle. They're in charge of all the sacred furnishings and for caring for the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a Kohathite who wrote these words, which, and we didn't plan this at all, but you just sang them. Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Go half. The list highlights the true priesthood of Aaron, major theme in the book, and it shows that Moses is from a priestly family. That's important because he becomes the mediator on behalf of God's people. It also brings up a few bad guys. It gives some background to Korah and his rebellion. Comes in number six. He claims equal status with Moses and Aaron. And you can look ahead to Numbers uh, 16, but trust me, it doesn't end well for Korah. It also tells us of Nadab and Abihu, who try an experiment in creative worship. And Leviticus 10 tells us that fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So next time you ask me to do something really weird up here, remember that. 
But you can see a genealogy is more than just a list of names. It's a validation of the ministry of Moses and Aaron. It provides their credentials. It serves many purposes, but mostly it highlights the personal nature of God's work. God's working out his plan through the lives of real people, especially Moses and Aaron. It shows us that God's leading and challenges connected to it are deeply personal. Every name has a story. God's plan is not theoretical. It involves real people who really lived. So don't just skip over the genealogies. There's always gems hidden in there. Let me finish by going back to verses 6 and 7, because hidden away in these verses is a preview of the Passover. The Passover meal comes in Exodus 12. We'll get there end of January, I think. It's the annual commemoration of the great deliverance by God of the children of Israel, bringing them out of bondage in Egypt. And in Exodus 12, God says, essentially, I'm summarizing a whole lot of verses. It says, every year I want you to commemorate this great deliverance in which I brought you out of Egypt, and I want you to do it through a meal. Every family must sit down once a year and have a meal, the Passover meal, the same meal that you had the night that I uh, brought you out. And there's three elements in that meal. There's bread, there's wine, and there's lamb. And I'm not going to go into great detail because Dave Dorse is going to be going over all this in January. But I quickly I want to remember the wine. Because in the Passover meal, the cup goes around four times. And it represents the four promises that God made to the children of Israel before he saved them. The four promises in Exodus 6. He says, I will bring you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. So the first four promises, the first four I wills. And the way the Passover worked was they read these verses. I will bring you out. Pass the cup around. I will deliver you. Pass the cup around. I will redeem you, pass the cup around. I will take you to be my people, pass the cup around. And every time the cup goes around, it's commemorating one of the great promises of God. And here in Exodus 6, the whole gospel is set before us. From its foundational blessing of forgiveness, freedom from sin's curse and condemnation, to its highest privilege, adoption into the very family of God. Dr. Philip Ryken puts it this way, he says, all that's required is to trust in Jesus, believing that he has turned the I wills of Exodus into the I have done it of the gospel. From Moses' vantage point, it's all to come. It's all future. It's I will, I will, I will, I will. One day it'll be true. But from our perspective, it's all I have done it. The work is done. I have done it. Rest in me, Jesus says. If today you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you remain in the bondage of your sin. You face today the wrath and curse of a holy God, and it will destroy you unless you flee to the only safe place available, the only one who can break the chains of sin and bring you out and deliver you and redeem you and to make you a child of God. You have to flee to Jesus, and you need to do that now. But if today you're a Christian, you're already a believer, 
If today, like Moses, you find yourself languishing in discouragement and disillusionment and disappointment and despair, then preach again to your own heart the gospel. Remember who you are. Remember who God is. Remember what's been done for you. It's not I wills anymore. It's Jesus saying, I have done it. And if you're a beloved child of God, made so by the wounds of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, fight your discouragement with the good news of the gospel of God's grace. Remember, there is no further truth about God ever to be revealed. Even we have been permitted to see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, see only the truth of the Exodus. His greater Exodus, which he would accomplish at Jerusalem for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And when in God's mercy we meet the Lord in the air, it will be to discover that once again God has done that which his name declares. He has gone down to Egypt to redeem his people for this is his name forever, and this is his name to all generations. And that's how God deals with us in this time of despair. God says, my people, my beloved, let me tell you who I am. I am the Lord. This is my name. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of Moses and Aaron and I am more glorious than you have ever seen, and I care more for you than you could ever know. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Teach us the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you forgive us for running to counterfeit gospels, to ways of salvation of our own making, for trying to fix ourselves of our own bondage. We ask that in the weakness of our faith, by your grace, you would pick us up and you would give us our breath back and restore a right spirit within us, and you would enable us to see you and to trust you and to hope in you. And for all who cling to Jesus, who've been set free, would you give us the joy of believing the gospel, of proclaiming and standing on the promises that are ours through Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.